Excellent. So I'm speaking to, I'm so excited, Dr. Desiree Tullerid, who is a rheumatologist. And I have to plug her place. It's called, I believe, Collaborative Care. It's yeah. at, okay, I got it right? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So it's at Unity Musgrave Professional Suites. Where's that? I've made Musgrave Road, I believe. And yes. Everybody can go with them. There's uh, this wonderful business that not only as a rheumatologist, nephrologist, as I suppose internist, and all sorts of wonderful, fabulous physicians, and my colleagues that are really, really wonderful and good and kind. So, you know, you can't go wrong with them. And I've been bothering Doc to jump into the meat of the matter about something called lupus, which anybody watching this, we're recording this at night. And I really, I'm very tired, but I really want to talk to you about this stuff because I get asked this a lot at my practice. And what the devil is this lupus and can I get it? And then I have a couple of patients with it, one in particular, that has asked me, every time she comes, she's had a little while and she asked me these questions over and over and over again. And so... I, I just want to jump in here with something that you said to me, Doc, and well, maybe before I get to that, the patient I have that had this issue, she's around, I'd say 57, not quite 60, but I'd say about 10 years being diagnosed and initially by a gentleman that is in this country and one of our long-standing working rheumatologists and put her on some medication to do fine and would follow up and occasionally get joint pain and some other little issues. And one of the things she asked me, which I'm sure we're going to get into different types of lupus in a minute, but she asked me is exactly what you alluded to in our conversation. Can she stop taking this stuff and do something else? Now, naturopathic and natural medication that's a big deal now and could you respond to that no that's such a good question that's a really common question because um especially for lupus um patients because one of the things about lupus is that um unlike many of our other chronic conditions diabetes and hypertension and so on lupus is actually um for the most part, a disease of the young. Um, you know, 80% of people are diagnosed between 15 and 44 years old. You know, that's like the peak of your productive lives. Um, and so, you know, the impact of being affected this way with a condition that may be lifelong is, is wide reaching. Um, you know, lupus is very variable from person to person, but there are cases in which it can be life-threatening. There are cases where it's, um, at, at the very least, maybe debilitating, at least for a time, or even disfiguring. You know, there are so many aspects. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's occurring at the time where you really don't have time for this. You know, you're studying, you have a young family, or you're early professional life, and you don't have time to be on meds, doctors, you know, blood tests, constant visits, and all of that. So there's and there's expense of it, right? So um, it's, but it can be tough for people to come to terms with this. Is this my life? You know, and at this point, you're not 60, 70, you know, you're 20, and you're taking 10 pills a day, or 
more sometimes. And you're saying, is this how it is? And of course, we know that the um, the the internet is there. There are other sources of information. The the platforms, you know, is is wide open for who supplies this information. And so it's no longer the purview of the doctor and the person who thinks a certain way. I mean, there are all these options being presented by so many people. Um, and, you know, it's it's natural to wonder, you know, why did this happen to me? Is this something that I did or didn't do and that can somehow be fixed? Is, you know, or is this, is this my life? So that's a common question and not one that we often have a good answer to. Um, the naturopathic person may have a better answer. <laughs> Um, and there are naturopathic doctors that I collaborate with a lot. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for that um, approach, a different paradigm. And I respect what that approach can bring to the table. Um, and um, it can vary a lot because lupus is not a static. It's not the same from person to person. And it's not, it's not something that is static over time. The best situation when somebody develops lupus is when you pick it up early, you're on top of it before it causes damage, which with long-term sequelae, you maintain control, you have tight control. And then we do have quite a few people who go into a sort of remission um, when you're in that place. Um, and a remission can be remission that it just means the disease is well controlled, you feel great. Um, but you are maintaining that with meds. And there can be cases where you are no signs of active lupus, even though you are not on meds. Um, that's possible. We do find that as persons get older, and the patient you described um, was someone like she was getting older, she's 10 years old to her diagnosis, but she was also maybe she's just passing menopause right yes, she exactly. yes and so she actually has a good chance that her medication requirements will be much less and um and it, later on there may even be a time when she will come off them um there are some medications that we consider to be sort of um a special special assurance special protection for person with lupus um, like, for instance, antimalarials like hydroxychloroquine that we encourage people to take even in small doses, even when they're doing well, because it actually keeps the disease stable and it can be prevent flares. And it can also have a protective effect on certain um, complications. We know the other side of doing well with lupus and surviving lupus is the, the cardiovascular risk. And so we know that hydroxychloroquine has a big impact on your cardiovascular risk and um, on reducing your risk of getting a flare and others having the disease get active again. So many people don't mind taking that. This requires some monitoring, especially in the older person. But we do find that now we're seeing much more lupus, lupus patients because of the success of treatment, more lupus patients who are older. And we are seeing that... Um, pattern where you know persons um have much more stable disease course um but i always advise people um you know the answer is not to um the answer is not to try to um rush the process i like to keep people focused on the priority which is 
be in control of the lupus. You know, it's not called wolf for nothing. Um, so it's a sort of situation where you are on top of it or it may get on top of you. And so um, sometimes there's a temptation to say, well, if I come off meds or if I stop taking meds, that will give me a chance to try a lifestyle thing. And one thing I learned from a naturopathic colleague that I work with, um, not at the same office, but we have more patients in common, is that she never encourages people to come off their meds. Mm-hmm. Um, but she always says, um, stay on your meds. If we work together and the lifestyle interventions or even whatever special things that we do are being effective, your doctor will know and your doctor will be able to reduce your meds. So there's never a reason, uh, at least under her care, I'm not sure if everybody behaves that way, but there's never a reason that you have to expose yourself to risk of having an uncontrolled situation. Um while you do an intervention. And so I think that's one thing that we can reassure people is that um, this doesn't have to be your life, but it may be your life right now. And you may be, um, you may be, um, you know, most for the most part, um, this will be, this will benefit you. So, you know, it's, it's not always reassuring to everyone, but um, we try to, um, stay close to our patients and try to make sure they have a community of support that gives them an indication. That's one of the values of like support groups. Um, Not necessarily, you know, sometimes support groups can go off on a tangent, obviously, Mm -hmm. but support group I know in Jamaican Lupus Foundation um, has a lot of interaction with health professionals of different kinds. It's still very much, it's a member-based organization, but primarily patients. Um, but there's a constant conversation. And I think that transparency and also the way people share with each other and just, you know, I do meet a few people who um, will say, you know, I don't want to be in the support group because I don't want to see people who are sick and I get depressed. <laughs> yeah. And I can tell you after the Volunteer Lupus Foundation mm-hmm. of Jamaica for like 13, is it going on 14 years? No, I have never been depressed <laughs> by spending time with the amazing um, people who are who are members. I mean, they're were, they were the last thing that would depress. They motivate me, they inspire me. That's why I'm still doing this. Um, and, you know, so that's the last thing you'll hear. And then when you see the generations interact and you've seen the people say, listen, I remember when <laughs> I was admitted, I remember this happened, I was on the ICU and this and that and so on. And you see them and they're moving around, doing their thing, um, still engaged, serving others. And um, and it, it, gives you, it gives people hope. And it says, you know, yeah, it, this is not all it is. So I think there's a, so there's a fear factor sometimes and there's just a fatigue. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, I'm so glad that, no, there's, there's so many developments in the treatment of lupus that I'm, I'm anticipating that the years of the heavy pill burden um, will be gradually, will be passing those um, years. So you're taking 20 pills and you have to have a fat face, a moon face and, and so, so yeah. from yeah. prednisone and all that. So we're, we're moving into another phase and, and that's very encouraging. 
Well, you said so much wonderful things, Doc. The the foundation that's that's in Kingston, I suppose, and they're easily and they they have the meetups. It sounds like that sounds very wonderful. And so, well, the people that are not from the corporate area, they'd have to come in, but definitely sounds very encouraging. And where are they located? I suppose we need to plug them too, since we're... <laughs> yes, I feel like that's where I represent more than anything. And by the way, you introduced me at Collaborative. I spend most of my time at KPH. Um, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> that's where I work full time. And then that's I go true. to Collaborative twice a week. Well, and know, then I, the I, rest I... of my waking hours are involved in Lupus Foundation. There, <laughs> there, you go. there you go. There you go. So, yes. um... Yes, they're located in the center, which Lupus Foundation has been around from 1984. Um, and it's been continuous operation as a member-based volunteer run organization. So you can see that, you know, it's a motivated group. And the, the motivation is to improve the, the lives and, and outcomes of people with lupus. Um, and this is done through information, um, you know, support, advocacy. And of course, we're always advocating I was promoting patient-centered research as well. But um, information, I mean, knowledge is power when it comes to lupus. So information is a lot of what we do and um, supports a lot of what we do. And patients provide that to each other. We're kind of collaborating with them in terms of technically and so on. But it's it's really great. Um, you know, it's a nice intersection. So um, the Learning Center um, has been around since I think 2014 um, at 7 Barbados Avenue. Yeah. So um, it's easy to, it's a ground floor location. It's easy to spot when you come off um, Knotswood. You come off, it's one way, Barbados is one way. Yeah. So you come from St. Lucia side. You come yeah. from where um, the, the, the um, S, Yes. Um, hotel is yes. and they come from Lucia side and you see that like, almost right after GNGI so um, that's where we are and um, um, this month we're open Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays hopefully by April we can we go back to every day but um, we it can drop in um, but I would say that we have a lot of online access as well so and especially during COVID I think we were uh, more prepared than a lot of organizations in that sense because um, our website is interactive. Um, people can sign up for membership and do a lot of those things um, right online, lupusfoundationjamaica.org. And so um, you can join, you can donate, you can, um, you know, see what events are coming up, you can register for an event, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you can see what things are about. You can find some information about lupus. Of course, you can link to our social media pages, which is also an area that, you know, we have been active in, an area, you know, to ensure we stay connected with that mm. um, younger population and that we could stay connected with our people um, during the pandemic too. And our support group meetings are all have Zoom access. And we were doing Zoom connections before the pandemic oh. um, because we didn't have as many active support groups um, throughout the country. And so we always made sure that, you know, the outer towners could could join in. Um, so that was fortunate. And then, of course, pandemic took us totally Zoom for a while, and we, we're, we're transitioning back to to, to um, hybrid. So um, we have support group meetings between the the groups in Kingston and Montego Bay every month. There's a support group meeting. They're different topics. They're really good. I usually have health professionals. It's great fellowship as well. 
Um, and so, you know, I would encourage anybody with lupus to really, and even doctors and so on, to encourage their patients to become part of, of that because you get access to information as a newsletter and so on. There's a, huge, a lot of more content now. We've, we've learned the lesson that we should keep them loaded on our YouTube page. So all the content that we should probably start loading up apart from our live events um, so that you know people can use that as a way because we used to have a lot of drop-ins at our learning center which is a library um, but now you know so many things are online I think people got used to that space and so um, there was always this audiovisual component but now we're taking it primarily online so yes that sounds so wonderful and I just need to send out the experience when I was researching SLE in Jamaica they have good medical information. It's it's very clear. It's in my opinion. I mean, although I'm a doctor, I found I couldn't. I mean, I think that's very self-explanatory. So it's wonderful. So it's a little resource too if you don't want to move from the website because you know everybody's into ease of operation. Also, I mean, it's you know I I think this is so wonderful and I encourage everybody who. Well, I suppose they always need support. So even if you don't have a SLE or lupus, and you you know somebody or made contact with this or had contact with it, you know, you know they will always need support. You know, this yeah. this is you know this is the nature of these bodies, and so I you know I have to do I'll get into some more medical information with you because I think my patients would kill me. So in lupus, as I understand it, forgive this uh, sort of simplistic definition, the the self, your body, your your body attacks itself basically, and that you know, self instead of being recognized as self is recognized as what they call non-self. You and if you get all of these issues, and there but there are other types of of when you punch in lupus into your search bar in Google to use a digital example, you will see other types of lupus, uh, the cutaneous, drug induced, and so on. What is systemic? Well, you know that that word means has a certain connotation. But perhaps I could ask, I should, well, the first thing I should ask is why is that word used in these other forms? It's drug induced because and the other types of lupus. Yes, I mean, you know, the evolution of the term lupus um, is a little bit, tor um, I don't know what the correct expression is to use. Um, there's a lot of debate about what the word means, and it has means wolf, and it come from, you know, the appearance of the person's face, like it looked like they were bitten by the wolf, or it looks like they are a wolf. I don't know. There's so many stories about that. Why they use that term but the term is actually on its own it's actually quite generic because somebody like a dermatologist will tell you all kinds of different things that they call lupus which is not really what we are talking about right lupus cordial lupus this lupus that so um it's it's sort of a generic term so i think the term um systemic lupus is really used to describe most forms of lupus or what we call systemic lupus erythematosus so um that's the majority of people that we talk about but it distinguishes it from um a few people who have this lupus affecting only the skin and, and specifically 
uh, what we call chronic cutaneous lupus. Mm -hmm. So really, um, it's it's a differentiate between a few people who have what what we we call, commonly call discoid lupus, or or otherwise known as chronic cutaneous lupus, which may may in, affect the skin only. Um, so it's an inflammatory condition, but it's just affecting the skin, a certain part of the skin. It may be also be quite localized. And in terms of there's no evidence that this immune dysfunction is affecting any other part of the body other than this the skin area. Um, you know, there's a proportion of people who develop the discoid lupus who um, over time could also do, show signs, turn up with signs of systemic lupus at some point. You know, they say up to a third of person will develop a systemic lupus, but they really, it's more about distinguishing those two things that come on. Um, the other two terms that we use the term drug-induced and some people use neonatal, yes. it's quite a, lot, a different context. So it's not really related to the primary conditions that we see. So for instance, there are cases where you are taking a certain drug that your, your immune system that stimulates a certain reaction in your immune system, you get joint pains and you may even get, um, you know, certain antibodies appearing if you look for them. But the point is you just stop the drug and <laughs> these, this reaction stops. And it's really not common. You know, it's really not common. So it's not really um, meant to be, it's, it's really not looked at in the same context. Neonatal lupus is also different because that's really not the, the baby being born with lupus per se. It actually describes a skin condition, primarily a skin condition, rash, that um, some babies may be born with who have what we call rho antibodies. So the mother doesn't have to have lupus, but they may have rho antibodies. Anybody can have rho antibodies um, that cross the placenta. And so you have a rash and then the rash may go away after a few weeks. Very rarely it can cause uh, the heart to have to, to, to not pump properly of the baby. But it's not necessarily the baby inheriting lupus or the baby coming down with lupus as we know it. So basically, for the most part, when we say the term lupus, we're usually talking about systemic lupus, which is the conditions you describe. This dysfunctional immune system, this autoimmune condition that could affect different parts of the body in a sort of um, particular pattern that we classify, um, you know, in that way. So if I am a patient and I'm wanting to do, I'm listening to this Dr. Wan, uh, Dr. Tolerie talking all of this stuff, I said, well, I wonder if I have that. There is this fancy rash, which I just need to get this out of the way that the medical students, even myself as a medical student, so what we call consultants are attending if you're abroad, will get very angry if you never knew what that rash was. It's a particular rash that has a butterfly appearance on your face. So, and they would use that and some other evidence to say, well, we that gave us a clue and then we went down that rabbit hole for lack of better words. Is that one way a patient without contact with a doctor can think about it to look out if they get a rash that seems like yes. it's and you know get you know you have some other 
And as I say, I was telling Doc, I don't want this to be too academic, but we have all this kind of joint pain and we have a list of cardinal, what we call symptoms and signs that we can look out for. But the joint pain, I find that happens a lot. And I find this this rush, you know, even in my, me myself, I'm able to practice in Stonehill, I've seen that a few times. So is, is that a fair way for a patient to just look at it? And themselves, you know, when they're wondering about about lupus. Yes, I mean, I think that's so important for people to actually be familiar with the signs and symptoms of lupus because we're in a country where the prevalence is high. Um, you know, it might be as often as one in two fifty of a population. Now, you know, so I mean, um, we're in a high African African Caribbean population, so um, so it's important for us to be familiar with lupus for the general population to know what lupus is, know some common signs. And I think that, you know, people have developed that familiarity with a lot of other conditions. Like you hear people saying, oh, you know, um, this person should be tested for diabetes. They're, you know, they're drinking a lot of water or something like that. So I think just in the same way that um, there's that sensitivity um, to that, I think we should be aware, aware. And, um, you know, it's important. So um, there is that classic butterfly rash. I mean, not everybody gets a rash at all, and not everybody gets a rash across the nose bridge into all the male or rash. Um, but it is classic, and there are very few things that, you know, there are other things that can mimic it, but the take-home message is really that if you see some unusual symptoms, you should always know what it is. Don't just ignore it and say, I don't know what this is. But it's helpful, um, especially somebody who, even if you don't have lupus, develop lupus yourself, you may recognize something in a in a neighbor or in your teacher. You know, you're, you know, you may be the person to say, you know, check this out, you know. But as you said, um, lupus can is often cause a disease of many faces. Um, and that's because it can present in so many different ways that it could be easily resemble other things. So a lot of the signs and symptoms are really not that specific, but it's because when you put them together and then you, you can do tests that show that this is these are a result of an immune dysfunction, sort of a dysfunctional immune system with the autoimmunity, then you can conclude and say, well, oh, it looks like this is lupus. So for instance, Non-specific symptoms, constitutional symptoms, we call it in medicine, but fatigue, fevers, you know, just unexplained, you know, blah, you just don't feel well. That's common, but that's not going to tell you exactly what you have. Um, you may lose weight, you're not sure why you're losing weight, you have any appetite and so on. So there are many reasons that you could have that. Somebody may think they have the flu, but then when after a few weeks or a couple of months of the same thing, you know, it's not the flu. So um, you have those kinds of symptoms. You have a lot of different cutaneous or skin symptoms. So there can be different kinds of rashes. We talked about one where you can actually get, get a deep involvement of the skin and we call it a discoid rash because it's sometimes it's round but it doesn't have to be round so there's can affect the deeper layers and so it can cause scarring and these can occur anywhere on the body um, they may occur more often in sun exposed areas sometimes you get an unusual rash in the ear you know on the scalp you know and the hair may fall out in that spot 
and um, or you're getting a, a rash of scars. It may be in a place that's exposed to the sun. It could be anywhere. Um, so that would be a discoid rash. And there are other kinds of rashes that are more what we call acute, um, just red, itchy, you know, especially what we call a photosensitive rash is very classic because sometimes you kind of see a rash that's shaped out like your <laughs> your color. <laughs> and you think... <laughs> Yeah, so that's it's on your face, it's on your chest, it's on your hands, and so on. So that's a little bit of a clue. Hair falling out. So that's also a very classic um, symptom um, that doesn't occur in the other autoimmune conditions. Okay, so if a person is having joint pain, which is very common, you have lots of different kinds of arthritis, which are also auto, which may also be autoimmune. But if your hair is falling out, and I don't just mean like, oh, you comb your hair, it's there's hair in the comb. I mean, it's visibly falling out. Um, there may be hair on the pillow or the hair is falling out in patches. Um, you should get checked because that could be quite suspicious. Um, and then there can be other things that occur. You know, as I said, joint pain is quite significant. There can sometimes the color changes in your digits where when it's cold, they keep turning blue. You know, and that's not pe peculiar to lupus, but, you know, it can be part of the picture. Um, there can be leg swelling. And if we start to see leg swelling, um, it could be a warning that there's a kidney involvement because if you if if protein is being lost in the kidney and you retain water. So sometimes the swelling can be the only clue that you have that there's some kidney involvement um, with lupus. And there are many other things. Sometimes there can be inflammation around the lungs or the heart that can give you chest pain when you breathe or can you chest pain when you lie back, flat, that sort of thing. So there can be many, many things. Um, we know that lupus can affect the nervous system. And um, some people have been known to first diagnose are showing up with a seizure, um, you know, showing up with seizures or even actually a change in your mood. Um, you may actually start to lose control of your thoughts and kind of be, having all kinds of uncontrolled thoughts that we call psychosis. Um, so that can actually occur just because of the lupus. And as soon as you treat the lupus, everything clears up. You, you, you come back to yourself. Um, so those are some of the varying things, but no one person may have everything. Um, there can just be a few things. So there are some people who may just have joint pain, some rashes, but they've never had an internal organ be involved. And there are some people who've showed up with kidney disease, nervous system disease affecting their spine or their brain, and they've never had a rash. Um, so that can happen. Um, but we do know that up to two thirds of persons with lupus can develop kidney disease. And so one of one things that we encourage people to do is anytime you have an encounter with a health professional, just let them check your urine. And we encourage doctors to do that. You know, the, the people, the, the residents on the ward know it because they're going to call me about the consult and they said, well, what does, what does the urine say? What did the urine dipstick say? Because you want to see if there's protein in that urine. So, because you never know. And kidney, kidney disease can occur silently. Yes. You just may not even notice anything. Um, so you don't want to miss that. So I just encourage people, especially those in primary care, or if you have any encounter with a person with lupus, and you may be the only person they may see for a few months, take the opportunity, if you have dipsticks in your office, just check their urine. That's a great way to just make sure that everything's okay. Yes, this, this and big my... sleep is for liquidity. <laughs> so, yeah. I'll put go. that plug in. 
Well, this this uh, they call this this condition lupus nephritis, where lupus effectively damages the kidneys. And it was mentioned because in speaking to our colleague that uh, I, I, I was telling about and others, this is a this is a growing cohort of individuals, and unfortunately, people need to know which I won't belabor here is that. When you get chronic renal failure in this country, it is very challenging financially, emotionally, physically. And in every way you can think of it, it's really not, not the best thing to have in the world. It's really because, so we, for example, we don't have transplant here, not often anyway. And it is really, it's suits you to really look. Look out for this, you know, this condition in yeah. particular, based on what, and and it's so. I don't say perhaps not preventable, but certain early detection will help. You know, in primary healthcare. So I mean that 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 is something that we we need to, which I suppose we need to. But since I'm, I'm talking about that, is there any? Way back, I mean, this is really. I just generally when you were talking, I was just wondering for patients to prevent the onset of this this disease as in if you are I'm not only a hereditary link but if if you is there anything that you can do uh, as a patient to avoid or prevent SLE as far as you know so far, um, as far as we know, there is not a lot, but there, for instance, um, but there are a few things that can reduce, but not necessarily limit your risk. So unlike many chronic conditions, we don't really consider lupus to be a lifestyle disorder. You know, they use the term lifestyle disorder, and that carries a whole lot of weight, because when you're 15 and you or you're 12 or you're 30 and you know you've lived a healthy lifestyle and you get lupus, um, we know that it's not something you brought on yourself. Okay, and this is a very important part of the conversation because you know, especially with women, we have a tendency to want to know, you know. You know, yes. Oh, um, yes, we want to think that we think things through and we wonder what could we do, what could we not do. There are a lot of things that we place on ourselves and especially in our roles as caregivers or as whatever in the family. There's sometimes women do carry, and it's not only women, but, you know, um, it's 90 percent women. Um, you carry the burden that adds to your to the distress of the illness if you think that um you know you because and so this is the other side of telling people you know uh, one person told me that um the response they heard and it wasn't a lupus patient who heard this but they were promoting something to do with the awareness of lupus and the response from this member of the public is why they don't learn to eat properly and stop with this, stop getting these things. Uh -huh. And so, you know, there's a perception out there and there, there are a lot of people who are capitalizing because not necessarily, I mean, with good intentions, but, you know, there are those people who came on, who come on and say the internet, say YouTube or something and say, 
drink this, take this supplement or whatever, or stop doing this, stop doing that. And we all want a way to participate in our healing. And lifestyle is very important part of promoting our healing and supporting our bodies as we heal, etc. Um, even if we're taking a more targeted approach by treating the disease itself, we also have to support our bodies in the healing process. So I encourage good lifestyle choices, but um, to this day, to be honest, beyond avoiding um, smoking, which will help keep you out of a lot of things, (laughs) not just lupus, Um, there really isn't a lot that you have control over because we look at um, what we know about lupus um, in terms of the predisposing factors is that we know that there's a genetic component, okay? And we know there's probably hormonal elements because of the gender um, bias in one direction. And because we know sometimes people become triggered during a pregnancy or some other situation, right? And then we know that there are other called environmental factors that maybe triggers but not necessarily causes you know so for instance somebody has a big day at the beach weekend beach party and then a few days after that they show up with a rash or you know whatever they're feeling weak and having fever and so on that may have been a trigger um, but we don't know how long the autoimmune process may have been at work and of course, there's a lot of interest in the gut. And um, unlike pop, contrary to popular belief, conventional school and conventional science has been looking at the gut for decades mm-hmm. and quite acknowledged that the gut is a ma- plays a major role in um, how our immune systems behave in the regulation of the immune system. So that much has been, we know, um, But we, you know, in terms of converting that to a particular approach, whether it's a a drug or a bacterial supplement, or it is a lifestyle that is going to predictably help to, is going to predictably give a certain result. We have not yet seen that in our literature um, to a great extent, but we do, um, there's some things that we encourage so we're not saying that this is going to prevent you from having lupus, but if you, anybody could benefit from these um, changes, you know, um, as I say, eating a diet that I think is generally encouraged by most people, heart healthy, high in fruit and vegetables, because these are nutrient rich diets that have in fiber, they have in nutrients and things that are that our bodies need to function optimally. And we encourage that. Um, we know that certain foods have uh, an, an effect on your symptoms. For instance, um, omega-3 seems to be something very beneficial because they've done studies of people with rheumatoid arthritis taking high-dose fish oils and they feel better. This has been well demonstrated. And so we encourage people to have that high omega-3 foods. They don't have to be fish. It can be um, other vegan sources and so on. So these are some of the interventions we encourage. Um, rest, sleep is very important. Um, there may be factors there that can increase our risk of autoimmunity. So for say, for instance, people who are in the world of sleep medicine are actually may, maybe a little bit more aware than even the rheumatologists are 
in terms of um, that kind of risk um, of autoimmune manifestations being higher in persons with certain kinds of sleep disorders. Um, so we know that rest plays a very important part in the body's repair mechanisms. And so this um, can be important. So if, if you have lupus, you know, there's primary prevention, there's secondary prevention, mm -hmm. right? But one thing we don't encourage is to for people to take their children to be tested for antibodies and people to go in asking for antibody tests to be done who are perfectly healthy, right? And having an antibody. So for those of your listeners who may be wondering what I mean, so you talked earlier about the immune response mm -hmm. and how the body is just so marvelously made, right? Yeah. Um, but the body has very intricate systems of monitoring um, for threats and of responding to threats in a very efficient way. And that's how our immune systems work. And inflammation is one of the tools that your body uses to contain a threat or to remove a threat, right? Um, and so the triggers, I say, should be, as you said, based on the ability of the body to reliably distinguish what belongs to you versus what shouldn't be there. And these, these mechanisms uh, break down or are no longer functioning very well. So um, antibodies are proteins that your body makes as a way, one branch of the immune system um, that creates memory. Um, so it, there's, there's a, it, it's, it's, it helps you to recognize a, pers a particular substance. Um, and that can, when that recognition takes place, that will trigger an immune response. And so that can be quite protective I mean, you're making antibodies to a virus that you've had, like chickenpox or something like that, or something you've been immunized against. But a person with autoimmunity who has a sort of dysfunctional immune system may actually make what we call autoantibodies. Right. Antibodies that actually are reacting to the wrong thing, they're reacting to you. And so those antibodies... Um, um, may occur, and these may be common. There may be common markers of a propensity to autoimmunity that may occur. So, for instance, pe many people have heard about the anti-nuclear antibody, which is a very common autoantibody, but um, a lot of people associate it with lupus. But it's actually commonly associated with many, many different kinds of autoimmune conditions. And it's also found the general population who has nothing wrong with them. Um, but something that's interesting is that um, when they've done studies for military officers or military um, in military populations where they actually collect serum during their entire career with the military, there's actually an experiment where, where not an experiment, but there was actually a study where people actually identified people who had developed lupus in, in during their lives, who had spent time in the military, and they were able to trace back to their samples and found out as early as nine years before um, they, you know, they were finding that these people had autoantibodies. We don't think that everybody who had autoantibodies um, actually ended up developing a clinical autoimmune dis disorder. And also you could see how long that process was occurring. So there's a lot of, there's a long process, you know, everything's a continuum. And so coming back to the, your question, we never encourage people to go looking for antibodies when they're well, you know, if you have something clinically um, happening, 
that you know would place an autoimmune condition, a sort of arthritis or something on that differential or on that possibility, on the realm of possibility of things that could give that, then you should check for the antibodies. So we say the same thing as for the clinicians, is that when you have a reason reason to suspect a particular thing, then you do the antibodies. Otherwise, you come up with a lot of antibodies and people get very anxious and worried and there's actually nothing wrong with them or, you know, for instance, family members of people with thyroid disorder, um, you, you frequently find an ANA antibody and they don't even have themselves thyroid disorder. So um, these can be quite common. So the best thing is to look at the clinical situation. Um, sometimes what we say to um, doctors is that, um, for instance, I get lots of referrals, um, especially in the public hospital. And sometimes people have been waiting weeks to get these antibody tests come back from the public lab or sometimes months, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And then when they get those results, then they send the results to me and I must decide when to see this person. Sometimes I don't know because I actually don't know what's wrong with them. So it would have been actually quite useful to sometimes check a blood count, you know, which you can get in a few days or a week or two. Um, check the urine to see if there's any protein in it or any sign that there could be a concern there. And um, of course, your kidney function, your, your albumin protein level, that sort of thing. So that kind of basic accessible information in a person who's having joint pain, a person who's having a rash and so on, can be actually more helpful than the antibody. There's nothing wrong with ordering it, but um, actually there's, there are more helpful things to, to help you figure out what's going on. And then the antibody is only just confirming that there's an immune dysfunction that's behind it. But really what you want to do is find out what's wrong and what is um, being affected. And then you know how to respond, right? And so, and it also, you can make the diagnosis, all right? So that's basically what I said, yeah. It, uh, I find you're being very charitable because the blood count, you can get that in, well, so no time at all to get that and the urinalysis that you mentioned, likewise, really very easy test. So it's a good, it's a good take home though for any doctor, referring to anybody, I think, specialists and even our colleagues <clears throat> that refer to things like x-rays, if they give a little more history, that would go a long way. I mean, we hear this. I mean, even myself, you know, just a little, you don't have to go over there. I mean, it's something. You can't, you know, I mean, I had a good friend of mine who's not really, I just said, really, doc, come on, just give me something. I don't know. You can't just give me, you know. <laughs> but, True. So, you know, it's it's a good, it's a good point, you know, this is how medicine works, you know. Unfortunately, they're, they're a whole clairvoyant, you know, we have this wonderful training, but, you know, we need lots of guidance. And yes. You know, we, I think, I don't know if it's laziness, but we have this fancy test called, which since I don't really know what time, Doc, so I'll try to cut to the chase, but this collagen vascular screen. And I meant to ask, using that alone, can you diagnose somebody with SLE? So to clarify that, collagen vascular is a group of these things, like a kitchen sink, including this ANA that you mentioned, and several others that are so in there. Uh, you can look at that anyway. It's a nice package. You get to charge a certain way. And <laughs> for the, the non-enterprising doctor or read lazy, 
you know, the, depending on your outlook, you kind of always test and get a lot of information. And it's something that we like to do a lot frequently, I would say, and I'm not sure, quite frankly. And so, the, so the, back to this question, you think using this alone, that, that's able, that, that's good enough evidence to diagnose somebody? <clears throat> Um, it can sometimes, it can be quite useful, especially when you have the wider context, as I was mentioning, you know, they talk about diagnosis, there are different, what we call classification criteria, but the, the, the recent ones are always waiting for the clinical things. And there are laboratory features that are not necessarily part of the collagen rasky screen, but it can be quite helpful as support um, a suspe suspicion. So you just want to make sure there's a clinical context that's appropriate. And then um, sometimes you get too much information if you don't have the clinical context and then it turns up things that can throw you in one direction or kind of cause undue fear. But is that it can actually be quite useful. I can tell you the things that I order if I see somebody with joint pain, for instance, or with a common scenario um, that may come to me. Um, it could be rheumatoid arthritis, could be this, could be that. I always check. Um, and, you know, you interview the person and examine the person. And I think that's quite helpful for me. But in terms of lab work, um, what I usually check, I check the CBC, which we call complete blood count, because... You have the red cells, you have the white cells, you have the platelets, you know, so there are abnormalities you could pick up in any of those that could clue you in, right? To a person with lupus could be affected in those areas. So just a simple complete blood count and inflammatory marker of inflammation, especially the ESR, which is really easy to, to get. And it's naturally quantitative, which sometimes you get a CRP, it's not quantitative. And you, um, and I always check um, creatinine at least, um, some people check the whole um, UNEs, as we call it, urine care, but I at least check a creatinine, especially so depending on the budget. And um, I always check a complete urinalysis. And then the other things that I always check is I usually check your liver function tests. If I can't order everything, then I'll order an albumin and one transaminase, one enzyme, like an ALT right? But if I can get the whole thing, then I'll do that because, and I'll, I'll check the uric acid because it might be a joint pain patient. You just don't know, is it gold, et cetera. And I'll check the CPK because again, there can be mimickers. Um, you can get myositis patients with joint pain. You can get a rash. They could have polymyositis, rash, joint pain. And so um, I like to include those. So a complete blood count, an inflammatory marker, ESR, uh, creatinine, um, some liver functions uh, to some extent, and a CPK and a uric acid, and a complete urine urinalysis. So those are my basics, and then I'll order an ANA and a rheumatoid factor. So those are the basic things that I would order first of all, because one of the very confusing things that can happen is, um, but sometimes it saves time, and just in the interest of time, you actually just order everything. Um, so um, if you have a strong suspicion that there is lupus in this, you know, high up in the differential, as we call it, then you can go ahead and order your double-stranded DNA, your complement levels, and so on. But if you just have some vague symptoms and you're kind of not sure which way this will go, these are the basic things that were very helpful for me. And one of the things it does, it means that it can allow me, if I make a diagnosis on a clinical basis, when you show up, I can probably start treatment right away. 
because I know you have normal, I know you have a certain kidney function. I know you have a certain liver function. I know you have a certain blood count. And so I'm not prevented from starting therapy because I have that information. So, okay, let's, let's go with that. So unless now I want to go over the second step, then I may want to have you take a, uh, uh, take the complement levels off, take the double-stranded DNA, or even, as you say, if there are any positive, may want that, what we call the ANA profile, which mm-hmm. is the extractable nuclear antigens. Um, and that's really doesn't always materially make a difference, but of course, in some cases, it's important, um, especially if you're planning a pregnancy or something like that. And of course, the next stage, you know, so when you really f- feel like you're going down the line of lupus, we check those um we check that we call serology antibodies and, and serum tests. And we also check things like your plotting time. If you're anemic, we may check to see, um, you know, if there, what kind of anemia is it? Is it what we call hemolytic? So there's a test to see if it's caused by the cells being destroyed by the lupus, the Coombs test and the retic count and that sort of thing. So you can go into more things. And you may want to check things like your antiphospholipid antibodies, but they're kind of more costly. So sometimes the patient has to plan for that and they're not really going to be affected by your treatment. So um, whenever you can have those, those will tell you if the person has a specific, not very common, but it's a very specific clotting risk um, that may be associated with certain antibodies, uh, not exclusive to lupus, but common, um, relatively. I mean, not that common, but... Um, so that would be a way to screen that, but those are not necessarily first tier tests. So it all depends on your timeline. So if you've made up your mind or you really think a strong uh, suspicion for lupus, you can then do, go into these second tier tests that give you more information, more costly. But if you're at the stage where you're really not sure what's coming at you, um, as I said, this is a this is what I described for the joint pain scenario. Those are the tests I do for a joint pain scenario, which could go in any direction. But if it's a young person, lupus should be in that differential, um, especially um, if it's a young female, lupus should be in the differential for joint pain. Yes, we, I think we mentioned this, that it skews, I don't know if we mentioned the, the gender, but it skews female and female heavily, that is lupus. And I oh, thank you so much. I have so much more questions, but I have to ask a couple more. One is that we mentioned that we have some older medications, and my wife is actually in skin, so I've heard of these. The term she uses is the biologics, and there's some other fancy names for that. Now, the difference in concept between the older treatments and these newer agents, if you could shed some light on that, I would appreciate it in terms of well as I understand more effective sure but and less side effects as well but yes. when, and, and and if you could get into a little bit of how they work and that kind of thing. Yes, that's such a good question. So um there's been a long evolution of antirheumatic therapy um over time. And of course Steroids were groundbreaking, revolutionary um, in the 50s or the 60s or whenever they came on the stream. And you could save people's lives, you know, with them, quickly control an inflammatory process. And, and that's just, it continues to be a life-saving agent. But we know that over time, the problem with steroids is, you know, there's a dose, a cumulative kind of risk that occurs. So the longer you take it and the more you take, so both, 
So even a low dose over time can be associated with problems, bone problems, avascular necrosis. So if you see lupus patients going around with a walking stick or us begging money to get their joint replaced, you know, osteonecrosis of the joint, that's real, you know, that's debilitating. So, and of course, osteoporosis, you have the cataracts, you have the diabetes with all that goes with it. And you have the appearance and you have so many things, the cardiovascular risk and so on. So we're more and more aware of those. And so in with the primary goal of treatment being to get the disease into remission, you know, you kind of think about a flare, is a flare. And we think that's a kind of analogy to a fire. And just like how you think about a fire, um, your response is proportional to the size of the problem. And then the faster you cool it um, is also the better outcome, less damage you have. So you see a big fire department and the faster, you know, the fire department comes and if the hose can work and the pressure is good, um, you get control situation faster and less damage. Um, so there's that element. Um, so the, our primary goal in treatment being to gain control of the inflammatory process quickly before it causes damage or complications or to minimal, minimize damage or complications and retain control of that. So very often steroids, that first phase of treatment, get to get in a remission in a hospital or something that you need a fast response. But we also know that we have to get on board very quickly with a whole range of agents that we use to consolidate that response and to maintain control so that we can actually minimize the exposure to steroids. Okay, there are some patients that have never been given steroids because they didn't really come, come in with something acute. Um, so those agents traditionally have been what we call the immunomodulators. Traditional ones are immunosuppressives, except for hydroxychloroquine, which is not really considered uh, immunosuppressive, but an immune stabilizer, very effective, very protective and prevents flares. But for this more severe disease um, and as a steroid sparing agent, hydroxychloroquine has value, but this is a mild level. And then you have the immunosuppressives. And of course, as the name suggests, you're suppressing the immune response, which is good. It stops the abnormal process, but then of course you're exposed to the infection risk and so on and other things that you have to monitor for. Um, but many of these can be given orally and you know that's good because it's convenient, but then there's a pill burden to that. Now here come the biologics and it's part of a, a, a growing body of what we call targeted therapy. Um, so the immunosuppressives are using drugs that we borrow either from the hematologist, cancer oncologist, or we're borrowing from the, the transplant world. And they're kind of suppressing. So the effect may be sort of more general. And so you have the effect and then you have these side effects um, that may be related to that. Whereas the targeted therapy is targeting just one molecule. They're usually a protein, which is, explains why most of them cannot be taken by mouth. They usually have to be injected, taken parenterally, and they're usually blocking one thing. Um, in lupus, um, you know, there's a whole family of them that are used in rheumatoid arthritis, but in lupus, um, the most common ones are the ones that affect how antibodies are generated. And um, so that cell, what we call B cells, there's a whole process that is involved in B cell activation and B cell, um, the B cells producing these antibodies and you can block them in different ways. We call the bliss, bliss, bath, pass, bliss, bath, pass, bliss, bath pathway. Um, but 
Um, a common one available in Jamaica is rituximab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is actually anti-CD20. So it takes out the cells that are creating that the major portion of these autoantibodies. Okay. While you retain the cells that have your have a memory of your previous um, immunity. Um, so say you had chicken pox before, you still have that um, protection, whatever. But if you have the um, the B cells taken out, then you, your reaction to a future vaccine while you're on it may be rather weak as well. So people tend to get the vaccinators updated before. Um, so that one is quite helpful. That is a drug that's given every six months, sometimes less. You know, uh, sometimes even every year or, or something that you just give it a couple of times and the person stabilizes so much that actually don't end up needing anything for quite a while or indefinitely. So I've seen a few cases where you really don't see any more flare ups. So it can be quite helpful, um, especially when the traditional drugs are not responding well and so on. So you can have a little bit of a low white count in a small proportion of people. Um, rarely, I've never had to give anybody Nupagen to bring those cells up, but that's usually transient, um, but otherwise well-tolerated. So unless you have an allergy or something during the infusion, there's almost very little side effect, except knowledge that if you go for a vaccination after having rituximab, you may not have a very strong response um, to the vaccination. So um, that's one that's very available. It's still a little pricey. We have not yet got it on the government formulary, but it is subsidized by the NHF. And it's been available for rheumatoid arthritis for years under subsidy by the NHF. So um, that's one. Um, we have Belumumab. Belumumab hasn't come out yet here, but that used to be primarily used for non-renal lupus, but now they're gaining an, an indication that includes renal lupus. And there, there, there's really just a range. It just means that people have choice. And it just means that in the places where we used to feel like we got stuck, we can have an option to get unstuck. And it also means that, um, especially as these medications become more accessible, um, the tablet burden potentially for those severe people who have to be taking 12 tablets, yes, mycophenolate at six tablets. <laughs> And then they're taking the steroids and depending on the dose, you know, or what stage they're on, they're on a lot of those too. And then they have to take the calcium and the vitamins, um, you know, D and all of that to supplement, counteract the effects of those. And then they have to take a stomach tablet because of the water steroids. And, you know, it's just really distressing. It's draining. So um, you can do that for a short time, but for a long time, it can be tiresome, especially when you're not getting anywhere or people have their reproductive plans, they have their life to live, et cetera, and they're being held back. And if you have that scenario, you have situations where people give, give up, they disappear, and then you find them, you might get called to see them on the ward, they're in trouble, you know, and you know, and so you don't want that to happen. So you don't want people to get frustrated. And lupus patients need a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, because it is a heavy burden. And um, very often, as I said, you know, it is a young stage and you have so much to do, you have so many obligations. So we just we just are so encouraged by the increasing options that they are to have people um, do well and live well. Um, that this will continue to need support and information. It also means that you have to have more information to make these choices, to be empowered in a setting where you can feel a bit overwhelmed. 
So information empowers you and makes you more confident. Support and understanding is also part of what empowers you because there's very few things are harder than trying to live with a condition that may be poorly understood by others around you, including the ones you learn most in the home. And so we always encourage um, everybody because in Jamaica, you know somebody with lupus. I don't care who you are. You must know somebody. Even if you don't know they have it, you know somebody with lupus. And so we all, it's lupus is everybody's business. It's going to affect not a, just an individual, it's, it's a family, the school, the workplace, the economy, the society. It's lupus is everybody's business because it's a big deal. Um, and so we all need to know about it. Um and we need to encourage not just the patients, but their family members to get involved. Something like Lupus Foundation, you don't have to even have lupus to become a member. You know, many of the people who are on, working the most, you know, on the board, doing everything, they don't even have lupus. Yeah. But, you know, you just get that motivation to see the difference that it makes when you, you can give support. Uh, to people, you know, and they're so brave, um, you know, that's my inspiration, they're my inspiration, um, and so um, I want a little WhatsApp group, they don't know I'm on the WhatsApp group, but <laughs> they're just amazing and inspirational um, people, and um, we need a lot of support and encouragement. Well, thank you so much, Doc, I, I think we, could, we can almost wrap it up here, but I have to ask you this last one, because it's this is something I ask everyone, and you would probably be a very good person to ask, seeing that you have seen, based on your bio, different countries, healthcare, in operation. In Jamaica, we have this wonderful resource, in my opinion, with these wonderful academics, wonderful doctors, nurses, supporting staff, and our healthcare, in my opinion, could be better. And based on where you say from, from lupus in your field, the country generally, how would you improve what we're doing here? And what what, what would you do to address our issues with our um, healthcare? Wow, what a good question. <laughs> um now you can ask the um pharmaceutical division of Ministry of Health. <laughs> Um, they'll probably know that I'd like them to buy some rituximab for the public system um, because they actually are subsidizing it on the private system, but then some people can't even afford it after the subsidy. Yes. And so the government will step in. One of the things that um, has allowed me to enjoy my, my work in the public health system is just that access to treatment. I mean, um, a lot of people don't realize how just how costly medication is, and and especially some forms of lupus medication, a hundred thousand dollars a month for one <laughs> of the medications, and my patients at the public hospital have had access to that without cost. Um, so that's not been um, you know so to the majority of the um, medications. Um, in cases where we're having to use drugs like we call rituximab, we're pleased to, to see that Ministry of Health, you know, has stepped in many times to pay for it, to buy it for patients. Um, and so, um, but there's, of course, a process to that and that kind of thing. So, um, and there are limitations in terms of, you know, that, that aspect. So, I mean, I would like to continue to see us uh, stay on the cutting edge and provide access 
to drugs that appear to be expensive, but they are so cost-effective because they, if they work, they're cost-effective because you're going to reduce the, um, the, the number of visits that the person has to make in the hospital system because they're doing well. You're going to reduce the amount of money that you spend on drugs that are not really working to solve the problem as fully as they can be or not tolerated well. You're going to save money on the amount of lab work that's involved when people are not doing well and have to be constantly monitored and, 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 and so on. You're going to save money on the complications that people get when they are on too many, too much steroids for too long. So I think it's a very good investment, um, you know, if the government continue this trend and actually, in at least in the public sector, um, actually start purchasing some of the biologics they do for rheumatoid arthritis patients and, and inflammatory bowel disease patients. But there is, um, I would say that one, I mean, it sounds like a small thing. Yeah. Um, no, and, it's, it's uh, I've heard this, this answer more than once. And, they, it, and, yes. and I think that and there, course, there must be something to it, yes. Yes, and of, of course, we're increasing steadily the number of rheumatologists. When I came, I was the second rheumatologist to be working in the island. And now we have, I think, six. Um, there are four in the government sector. So we have a Montego Bay has two rheumatologists in Cornell Regional Hospital. Um, I'm at Kingston Public Hospital. Dr. Hagley is at um, Spanish Town Hospital. And of course, we have UA has a full-time rheumatologist and some part-time support. So we need more, um, to, especially we want to um, serve the southern region again. Um, when I say the southern region, we want to the mandible side. Yes. Um, so we'd just like to see expansion of that. So we're planning hopefully to have um, some start with some monthly clinics. We had the conversation just you know recently about doing monthly clinics as an outreach. We're all like terribly stretched but i think it really would help patients if we could actually meet them in their region and and take turns maybe or come down in a group um so i think that's a way to extend the reach um i also think um you know we should continue on the trend of medical education i'm with lupus foundation actually medical physician education is part of what we do when we have the annual symposium although it's a shared learning spaces for the patients too but I think the, the maintaining the public education, giving support, um, I would love to have, um, you know, or the government um, actually sponsor um, staffing for our center <laughs> because it's sometimes hard to constantly raise enough money to maintain a full-time person. But we, get, we are operating like a social services agency. We're getting out of calls. You know, what should I do? How can I get information? Where do I find a treatment center? Um, how do we get connected to a support uh, network? Um, just solving practical problems, the members, member medication assistance, um, healthcare assistance, and that kind of thing, lots of that. So we have to be constantly, consistently um, available to kind of feel that and to deliver. Um, sometimes we have material you're looking at the website and we want to we want to post it we want to you know we want to edit videos that we did of you know talks that we got and and load them up and we don't have the resources to keep it up constantly so um but I would be very glad if we could get a government subvention just to just to fund um somebody in the office to just keep us keep everybody coordinated because of course we have 300 members we're intended to grow 
Um, but we serve the public. I mean, people call us from all over the place, WhatsApp us, um, DM us, and that kind of thing. And we really want to just continue to be resource, uh, supportive. And we love the partnership that's going on. Um, you know, they're supportive of our community efforts and, um, and our medical education efforts. And so we want to see that continued kind of partnership that they're doing with the NGO sector, you know. Mm. So that's what I would say. Excellent. Um, well, I thank you so much. I think I've chatted you out thoroughly. I thank I've you. I've chatted you, you out. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed about my long, long answers. <laughs> no, 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 no